The NASA culture has not learned, has not changed, has not healed itself, fixed itself. And they're still in denial, I believe. As a matter of fact, the Columbia Accident Investigation Board highlighted the culture as the primary cause of the Columbia accident. And so the culture did not change because I witnessed this culture as we were preparing for the very next mission. But my fears are that they're gonna go with this heat shield without truly understanding it. And they're going to put a crew on the next mission, Artemis II, and that's what I worry about. I don't have much faith that they're going to do it correctly, the way I would have liked them to do it. We work with kids in Finland, Australia, the United States, educators in Africa, in, in Mexico, and, and also in Brazil. This is an experience for kids around the world, and it's gonna take the entire world for us to work together to do something phenomenal in space. And that was the beauty of the International Space Station. Over 15 different countries working together. Some of them used to be our enemies. And uh, just coming together to do something positive, which is what we should be doing. And, and that's what space means to me. And that's what we should be using it for. My name's Dr. Gary Crotez, and I'm a coach, podcaster, and award-winning author of The Idea Mindset, a book about how to figure out what you want and how to get it. The unlock moment is that flash of remarkable clarity when you suddenly know the right path ahead. When I'm in conversation with my coaching clients, these are the breakthroughs that are so profound that they remember vividly where they were, who they were with, what they were thinking when their unlock moment happened. In this podcast, I'll be meeting and learning about people who have accomplished great things or brought about significant change in their life, and you'll be meeting them with me. We'll be finding out what inspired them, how they got through the hard times, and what they learned along the way that they can share with you. Thank you for joining me on this podcast to hear all about another Unlock Moment. Hello, dear listener, and welcome to another episode of the Unlock Moment podcast. Today is really special because it's the 100th episode of the Unlock Moment podcast. I remember back at the start, wondering how I was going to get past 10. And it's so exciting that joining me in this special centenary episode is just a fantastic guest, NASA astronaut, Dr. Charlie Kamada. I'm deeply grateful to the fabulous Dr. Ruth Gotian, who you can hear back in episode 51, for introducing the two of us. Dining in today from near Port Canaveral in Florida, where he's been watching SpaceX launches with the family, Charlie is an American engineer and NASA astronaut who spent almost 14 days in space in 2005 aboard Space Shuttle Discovery in the return to flight shuttle mission, the first shuttle flight after the Columbia disaster in 2003, in which the shuttle broke up on re-entry, killing all seven astronauts on board. After his space flight, Charlie was director of engineering at NASA's Johnson Space Center and was then senior advisor for innovation to the office of the chief engineer at NASA headquarters. Charlie retired from NASA in 2019. He holds a doctorate in engineering, nine patents, and over 20 national and international awards. We're going to hear about his journey through life and through space, his leading role in the Columbia disaster investigation, and his perspective on the culture at NASA and how mistakes can start to creep in in high-stakes scenarios. 
We spent quite some time talking in advance of this recording. More than anything, I find Charlie deeply authentic, provocative, and compelling. I know you're going to find this conversation fascinating, and it holds so many lessons for authenticity and leadership and for creating a psychologically safe culture where people feel it's okay to speak up when things are not right. Let's dive in. Charlie Kamada, it is my very great pleasure to welcome you to the Unlock Moment. Hi, Gary. Great to, uh, great to meet you here on the podcast. And congratulations for 100 episodes. Believe me, I know how difficult that could be. Thank you so much. It is really exciting. So let's go back. It's the 1st of February 2003. Space Shuttle Columbia is in orbit, coming towards the end of its mission. Bring us into that moment as you experienced it. Well, I was training in Russia, Gary, and it was the afternoon there in Russia. And one of our cosmonaut uh, friends came across the common area at the Yuri Gagarin Cosmonaut Training Facility to inform us that we lost our crew. And we were totally in shock. Uh, three of those crew members were my classmates. All seven were, were close friends. And we were just stunned. This is the first time that we lost the crew during entry back to the Earth's atmosphere. And uh, so we were in shock. We rushed inside to our little cottages in Star City, turned on the TV, and started to watch and collect information. And in that moment, what was your overwhelming feeling? First, it was shock, Gary. Then it was sadness. Then it was anger. You know, because when we actually started seeing the visuals, of the retouched, uh, enhanced video images during launch. And I saw the size of that piece of foam, and I saw where it struck either the leading edge or the, the right below the wing leading edge in the fragile uh, space shuttle silica tiles. I knew it was a problem. You know, this is something I worked. I worked in thermal protection systems for over 22 years at NASA Langley, and I just knew in my gut that this was serious. And I was amazed that that was the first time I had heard about it. So when the shuttle mission was ongoing, it wasn't really known or talked about at that time that the damage had occurred in, in the launch phase of the shuttle going, going up. We knew, we knew it happened. And people uh, on the different teams, the shuttle tile team, thermal protection team, the wing leading edge team, it's called the leading edge uh, structural subsystem problem resolution team. They were all being queried by the, by the mission management team as to whether or not this was critical. And so they had to start looking back in history of large foam pieces coming off when, when the vehicle was hit and Unfortunately, they did not have any real experts that understood ballistic impact. In the entire team at Johnson Space Flight Center and the contracting team in the, in the MER, the back engineering rooms, we really didn't have any, any experts, any researchers on ballistic impact. And what was amazing to me was that we relied on people that did not have this expertise and a shuttle code, a, a code that was developed, which was used inappropriately and could not really determine 
did not really simulate the physics of the problem. It was a very simplistic computer program, which was really a curve fit of only 50 data points. And people relied on this and they believed the people that said it wasn't a problem. And the people that were in charge at high levels in management did not have the technical expertise to question them, to critically challenge them. And so a bad decision was made. The decision was made by these folks that it would would not be a problem. And at one point, they were not even going to tell the crew that they had been struck by this huge piece of foam, almost two-pound piece of foam about the density of styrofoam, traveling about 550 miles an hour, hitting the vehicle. Amazing. And so in that moment, you're describing something that is a failure of leadership, a failure of management, a failure of engineering in an organization that those of us not close to NASA like you are, we, we think of NASA as a, one of the world's greatest engineering organizations. They put a man on the moon. And that was 20 years ago. Now in 2023, NASA is progressing the Artemis program. We see it in the news, an attempt to reestablish a human presence on the moon for the first time since Apollo 17 in 1972. Have we learned our lessons? And, and what are you seeing in the NASA culture today? The NASA culture, what, what I've seen, my experience has been, the NASA culture has not learned, has not changed, has not um, healed itself, fixed itself. And they're still in denial, I believe. And so we flew right after the Columbia accident. There were many issues with the culture that was brought up. As a matter of fact, the Columbia Accident Investigation Board highlighted the culture as the primary cause of the Columbia accident and basically mapping and showing how similar both the Challenger accident and the Columbia accident were with respect to the dysfunctionality of the culture in the different ways it was dysfunctional. And so um, the culture did not change because I witnessed this culture as we were preparing for the next, very next mission, show a lot of the same bad behaviors, right? They were relying on analyses that were incorrect um, and, and that had lots of errors. Uh, they were making decisions that were not based on analysis and experimentation. And so I did a lot of work after we came back from flying and while I was director of engineering and after I was reassigned as director of engineering, understanding how this happens, how these cultures develop and why it's so difficult for them to fix themselves. And what I realized, because I have over almost 46 years at NASA, worked in multiple different levels, um, both at a research culture, an engineering culture, programmatic culture, senior executive culture. I realized that what we lost after Apollo was that research culture. We had invested a tremendous amount of funding in the three NASA research centers. We prided ourselves on developing analyses and verifying those analyses to predict complex behaviors of these complex systems using a scientific method. And, and so we had this phenomenal research culture. And about 35, 40 years ago, we stopped investing in that research culture. And so while we have 
really good engineers, right? We had problems with my wing leading edge when we came back from flight and the programmatic team, the really good engineering team that was supposed to be the experts on wing leading edges missed a serious anomaly. They thought it was not a systemic problem. And it took me about a year to convince the newly established engineering and safety center, the NASA engineering and safety center that was supposed to solve these problems. It took me a year to convince them that we were flying panels on the shuttle vehicle that had serious anomalies that could cause an accident. And what are you seeing today on Artemis that gives you that sense that some of those cultural challenges haven't, haven't been resolved? Well, I'll tell you, Gary, you know, I, I heard from the news that when Artemis One came back from its flight around the moon and entered the Earth's atmosphere, that the, the folks on the ground saw things that they had not predicted ahead of time. And the fact that I was not able to pull down any photographs of the bottom of the vehicle, the heat shield, to show me what happened, led me to believe that NASA was kind of covering up or downplaying a potentially serious problem. When I actually was able to look at the damage to that heat shield, I noticed it was pretty serious. There were large gouges of material taking out on the bottom and the sides of that heat shield that happened as it was coming back through the Earth's atmosphere. And the people were downplaying it. NASA, once again, was trying to do it totally in-house. They were relying on the NASA Engineering and Safety Center and the engineers they had in place to understand this problem. And I knew it was going to be a problem for the same reason that the NASA Engineering and Safety Center wasn't able to uncover the problems with the anomalous anomalies on my wing leading edge. They did not have the expertise, just like they did not have the expertise to predict the impact problem. But when we put the right teams together, right after the accident, I went to the research centers at Langley and Glenn, and we put together the right team, we were able to solve the problem. Unfortunately, NASA does not have the structural experts to understand the behavior of this heat shield material. It's a, what they call a heterogeneous material. That means it has different properties in different directions. It's not isotropic like a solid piece of aluminum. And so to predict how that's going to behave during the extreme heating environment, how it's going to flake off or chip off or large cracks form is, is almost impossible. And so I know they are not going to be able to understand the true root cause of this problem by actually conducting analysis and experiments and predicting the failures ahead of time. See, this is what we did when we had the impact problem. To understand how that foam damaged the wing leading edge, we put together a team and we took about three months and this team studied the foam. They studied the, studied the material that the foam hit. They conducted analyses at multiple different levels, conducted experiments, and then they predicted ahead of time exactly the damage that would happen. And so when they ran the test and, and they saw that the damage was about a 14-inch square hole in the wing leading edge, it exactly matched what was predicted. And so that gives you an idea that 
simulations and your understanding of the physics of the problem was was well, was well understood. And we do not have that with the heat shield. And and so the heat shield is different than the Apollo heat shield. Uh, they did an experiment, EFT-1, where the heat shield, uh, where a, a, a capsule came back from low Earth orbit with the heat shield material that was similar to Apollo. It was it was uh, AFCO-filled honeycomb, and it worked perfectly. They went to these large blocks of the AFCO material, which is a an epoxy phenolic formaldehyde resin that has some fibers in it, some glass fibers and some glass beads. It's a wonderful ablator, but it's a solid block, and it wasn't inside that honeycomb. And so it doesn't really have any sheer strength. And so large cracks could form, and they could it could cause large pieces to come off. I think what makes this story so fascinating is, is precisely that is, this isn't a story from history, how things went wrong and then later they were resolved. This is a story of a, of a loss of culture that, that is potentially still an issue today. And I think a lot of leaders that listen to this podcast you know, are people who are trying to you know, maintain the quality and standards of their organization. Talking about the culture, because you mentioned it again in the culture now, I reached out to the administrator at NASA, Bill Nelson, and some of the, the key leaders, uh, chief engineers and things like that. And my recommendation to them was that they needed to create a totally objective external review board of subject matter experts. They refused to do that. And, and they seemed to think that they needed more data in order to present to the review board. But what I was trying to explain to them was that they needed these external experts to help them actually solve the problem. If they don't do that, you're going to cause a delay of extended delay. I mean, they're already mentioning the delay. But my fears are that they're going to go with this block AFCO heat shield without truly understanding it. And they're going to put a crew on the next mission, Artemis II. And that's what I worry about. Uh, there's not that much material out there. They're not sharing the information properly with everyone. They have one point of contact in the program office. Everything has to go through this hierarchical procedure. And you really need lots of people assessing the data simultaneously to make their recommendations. And what's your confidence, given what you know of the, of the organization, the culture, that by the time it comes to Artemis II, they will have put the things in place they need to, to, to create the assurance they need? I don't have much faith that they're going to do it correctly, the way I would have liked them to do it. I believe they're going to somehow convince themselves that they understand the problem, just like they did with large pieces of foam coming off the, the external tank. And yet we almost lost our, our vehicle because a large piece of foam came off. The next mission after us, large pieces of foam came off. They were never really to understand why the foam was coming off. And so what happens is uh, what Diane Vaughn calls normalization of deviance. Bad things happen. Uh, anomalies happen. Yet um, th there are no severe accidents with no loss of crew or mission. And we tend to normalize that deviant behavior, fool ourselves into thinking we, we understand it when we, really we're just throwing the dice. You know, it's a, 
is a probability that one of those times large cracks are going to form, a large piece of the heat shield is going to come out at the wrong time, and we could potentially lose a crew. And that would be catastrophic. That would be disastrous for the program. It would set us back several years. And, you know, Bill Nelson, the NASA administrator, has talked about, you know, this is a space race. Only this time it's with, with China, not Russia. And the Chinese are much more capable and they have the resources. And that's that's what I worry about. I want us, I want NASA to be the excellent organization it was during Apollo. Hmm. And take me back to when you were early in your career coming through, because you, you came, you know, you were growing up in the early days of the of the space race. Tell me, you know, what was your first experience of, you know, seeing people going into space and how, how did that feel when you were early in your, you know, in your life and career? Well, it was way before, since I'm an old guy, Gary, it was way before I was working for NASA. I was, I was like eight years old, you know, when, when we landed on the moon, you know, actually I was a teenager when we landed on the moon, but I was like, um, you know, not even 10 when Alan Shepard and, and Mercury 7 astronauts were going into space. And so, you know, much like Homer Hickam, who's a little, just a little bit older than me, but in Colwood, West Virginia, I was this kid in Queens, New York, that was trying to build rockets and launch rockets in, in Queens. And man, that, they, those were our heroes. And we have another moment like that right now, going back to the moon, going back to Mars. You can feel it with kids, because I work with kids around the world. Kids are excited about this. Uh, India just landed uh, a, a rover on, on a, a probe on the surface of the moon. It is exciting. And the NASA that you first joined, what did it feel like when you walked through that door for the first time? You know, I I lucked out. My uh, my whole life has been uh, I've been a charmed, very blessed individual. It seems like my whole life because I interned between my junior and senior year at NASA Langley Research Center. You know, I was studying aerospace engineering at the Brooklyn Polytech. Didn't really know exactly which area of aerospace engineering I was working on. And during that internship, I had these amazing mentors. And, you know, a good friend, Ruth, belongs to the Mentor Project. And we talk about the importance of mentorship. But the fellow that mentored me, Dr. James Starnes, was just amazing. For, the, for those two months, I realized that what I wanted to do when I graduated was not work for some aerospace company. I wanted to work for NASA, and specifically, I wanted to do research. That was what really excited me, doing things that people had never done before, learning, gaining new knowledge. That, that was what excited me. And that robust engineering culture that you're searching for now and, and demanding of them now was a culture that was there when you first joined? It was there, Gary. It was there, but it was in the research centers. So, you know, um, I'm going to be writing a book about this, and many books have been written by historians about NASA. And so it started from NACA and that research culture that made us the leaders in the world in aeronautics and aviation um, was there. That DNA was there. And they took people from those research centers, literally that DNA, 50 people taken um, 
and brought to uh, Johnson Space Flight Center to help start the human space program. And so the DNA was there, and there was a, a, a strong connection with those research centers. Over the years, as money started dwindling and people weren't funding research, and the people at Johnson Space Center and Marshall Space Flight Center were doing amazing work, they lost contact with their research roots. And unfortunately, when these problems happened, they did not go back to those key people. And as a matter of fact, they were looked down upon as people that were playing in the sandbox. You know, they looked at themselves as they're working with real hardware. They're putting people in space. We don't need these geeky people that are doing research anymore. And it was a negative, the way they viewed these people as if, you know, they couldn't do real engineering work and build real things when really the first rovers we ever landed on the surface of Mars were by people working at Langley Research Center. They ran that program. And so you had this conflict and you had this arrogance that was being built up by the people at Johnson Space Flight Center, Marshall Space Flight Center. They had the power. They had the money. They needed to keep it all in order to fund these large space programs and money got cut off from the research centers. So when they really needed, when they really needed these people, they go to them. After the accident, they go back, and there were a few people left at the research centers that they could pull from, but they're, they've been retiring. And so, uh, unfortunately, that's the mess we're in right now. And it's not something that they could fix easily, because to gain that research expertise takes 10, 15, 20 years mentorship, bringing people in and building facilities and training these people on doing the analysis and experimentation that's necessary to build these these high-level researchers. And when the Columbia disaster happened and, and you know you knew the people that were on that shuttle that were that were that were killed in, in the disaster, what role did you play in what happened afterwards in the investigation? Well, I was, you know, I was totally pissed off, Gary. I was pacing the floor in, in, in the cottage at, at at Star City, Russia. I wanted to go back home. We had to stay there one more week, which was ridiculous because the we were backup crew for Expedition 8, and they said they had to keep training, which was ridiculous. I wanted to go back home and grieve with my um classmates and my friends in the astronaut office, my comrades. Unfortunately, when I did get when I did go back home, I told the head of the astronaut office, you know, I don't need to fly in space. Um, I want I know all these people and all all these companies around the country and all the NASA centers. I want to put together the teams to help solve this problem because I knew they were going to be struggling. And so that's what I did. Even though people were trying to prevent me from forming those teams. I formed the um, impact analysis team with people from Langley and Glenn, working with people at some of the national labs. And we proved that we had the right team and we sold it to the program. And then the program said, okay, maybe we do need this team and we'll put one of our own people in charge of it. When I saw they were having problems developing a repair technique for the wing leading edge, you know, that was something that the program office said, we don't really need to fly in space. 
and I wasn't uh, trusting that decision. I felt we really needed to have that because I, I knew we were never going to be able to prevent foam from coming off and striking the vehicle. So I went in my good buddy Don Pettit's uh, laboratory uh, offsite, and um, we came up with techniques for repairing the wing leading edge that they eventually adopted. And we flew, I flew on my mission, we flew on every other mission. So I felt like the head of the office, Kent Rominger, allowed me to do my job and provided cover for me and allowed me to stay as an ast- to stay as an astronaut. And I don't know if you've heard the the interview I did. In, in, I have a podcast series called Leading Edge Discovery. I did a series with Eileen Collins, and I asked Eileen because the program office. I was still making lots of enemies in the shuttle program office, and they wanted to pull me from the, my mission. And I asked I asked Eileen. I said, Eileen, why why did you stick up for me? You know, I know many other commanders would have, would have taken me off the flight. And she said, Charlie, because if we are going to change the culture, what we need to understand is that every voice is important and your voice is important and we shouldn't silence any voices. And I have to tell you, Eileen is one of the very few people at NASA that actually got it. And she's one of the few people that had the courage to stand by and stand by me and um, prevent them from taking me off the mission. So she's an amazing lady. She has an amazing book, Through the Glass Ceiling to the Stars, Eileen Collins. Yeah. Amazing. And I think that that message of saying, when you have the conviction of, of your perspective and you're prepared to stand up and say it, even when, you know, as an astronaut, you know, you might be risking your opportunity to go on a mission, but it's the right thing to do. It's such a powerful message. And I know people are going to hear that and it's going to resonate with them. You know, I don't like to say this because it sounds like I'm blowing my own horn, but the leaders have to be able to protect their people. They have to take the hit for their people. And when I was director of engineering, I told my people if they ever had an issue, they could go around the chain of command, go directly to my office. And if what they were saying is right, I would carry it forward because I was their leader and I would take the hit for it. I would, I would be accountable for it. And you have to provide that level of psychological safety. It starts at the leadership at the top and you have to constantly guard against mid-level managers because it only takes one team, like the leading edge subsystem problem resolution team, the O-ring team, to be dysfunctional. Okay, to to silence voices, to silence uh, critical thinking and 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 discourse and disagreement in order for accidents to happen. Do you remember the day that you were informed that you were going to fly on that return to flight mission (laughs) on Discovery? Yes, I know exactly what day it was. Gary and I was very, very surprised because I was working very hard with Don Pettit on these repair techniques. And I was at my desk at work and it was Columbus Day. And Kent Rominger called me up about a year and a half before our next flight in 2000, uh, 2004. And he told me that I was going to be on the next crew. I was totally blown away, totally surprised. I was in shock and, and totally elated and went home and told my family that I was going to be on the next mission. 
How long was it from being told that to actually when you flew? So um, they had already had a a mission planned for STS-114. After the accident, they had – so they had a crew. They had the commander and the pilot, and they might have had, I think, one or two other people that were going to be on that mission, but they hadn't selected the entire crew. They selected us, and – and it took us about a year and a half. So we trained for about a year and a half as a crew, possibly a little bit more, um, getting ready to fly in space because they, they were busy developing the technology and the procedures in order to make sure that we wouldn't have a similar accident on our mission. And you're sitting there as one of the most senior engineers in NASA. You know in great detail what happened in Columbia and bits of foam and leading edges of wings, and you're strapped to the top of a rocket, uh, ready to head into space. What was in your mind then, knowing everything that you knew from what had happened the time before? I was, believe it or not, I was very calm. I was very relaxed because I felt that, you know, we had some plans in place. We had a strategy. If we had damage I felt sure that we had repair techniques that could fix the wing leading edge and also some of the foam tiles. I felt pretty certain that we could do that. Um, and we also had the ability, if there was damage that we could not repair, that the plan was that they would send up a vehicle to rescue us. We would shelter on the space station and we would wait for a rescue vehicle to come and get us. Unfortunately. On our mission, when we launched, a large piece of foam came off the um, called the protuberance airload ramp, a PAL ramp, they call it. About a three-foot piece of foam came off, almost hit our wing-leading edge, and they grounded the fleet. So until we knew that there was no damage, our spouses on the ground did not knew for a fact that they were not going to be sending up a rescue vehicle to come get us. So that would have been very interesting if we did have serious damage. But, um, but I mean, those are the risks that, that we take, that we sign up for. And so most of the astronauts, you know, if it's a one, uh, for space shuttle, it was probably about a one in 67 chance that we might not make it back. That was the risk. Hopefully, I believe Artemis and I know on, on the Dragon, the, the, the probability of, of critical failure is, is uh, a, lot, a lot lower. The probability of it happening is, is less. But we knew that that was, that was the risk. And so we were in a lot better shape than the crew before us. And you're up in space for almost two weeks. You know, this was 20 years ago. Looking back, what are your abiding memories of that, of that time in space? What do you remember? The thing that I, when they talk about what was the most what do you remember most about being in space? What was, I, I would say it's the camaraderie, it's the teamwork, it's, it's all that training and putting it together to actually have a mission that went flawlessly. I mean, we had some hiccups. We had a critical issue with uh, gap fillers, pieces of material that was sticking out from the belly of the vehicle. We had to make a critical decision. Uh, we had to have an emergency uh, spacewalk to basically pull those pieces of material. And if we didn't do that, we would have lost our vehicle. 
we would we would have um, basically disintegrated dur- during Earth entry. We would have overheated, and so we had some interesting moments where we worked together as a team as we trained with the larger team of hundreds of people, thousands of people on the ground, and we had a hundred percent successful mission. That was that was an amazing accomplishment. Just working together with my team, my crew, our training team on the ground, our engineers on the ground. And you're going through those really critical moments, those critical issues that you describe. Was there was there a ever a sense of of uncertainty or did it feel at any point emotional what you were doing or did your kind of engineering mindset yours and the teams sort of kick in and people were this okay this is what's happened this is what we do about it how does that play out if i if i could say one thing gary we what we do amazingly well at johnson space center is train crews to fly in space we have the most we have the best trainers in the world and they train us for every potential scenario. We had extra long time to train as a crew. They throw all different anomalies at us in the different simulators. We were ready to fly. We felt very confident. Even when we had these anomalies happen in space, we were 100% positive that we were going to solve these problems. And looking out the window. <laughs> And looking out the window every now and then, like I say many times, Andy Thomas would grab me by my collar of my shirt, float me up to the flight deck, and put my face in the window and make sure that I took the time to enjoy the moment. And what's your abiding memory of of, of what you saw from up there? You know, what was amazing to me was we had we had the southern lights that were that were brilliant that were very very much out there and and obvious the southern lights were phenomenal there must have been a solar a, a lot of solar activity during our mission because it was brilliant it was like we were flying through these blue green clouds of 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 these lights and the other thing that I remember distinctly was flying over the Arabian Peninsula and watching watching a sandstorm just look like a, a brown blur go across uh, go across this large land area and and the lights um, and the clarity you know when you're up in space and looking at when you're coming close to dock with the space station and just the brightness the crispness. Of, of the of the colors and the light um it's just striking it's it, it's really striking and i know lots of lots of astronauts talk about that john young used to tell us about that when we were training and we were being interviewed and you just have to experience it to to to, to understand it i guess and if you're listening to this as an audio podcast, you can't see Charlie, but I can, <laughs> I can see Charlie. And I can tell you that Charlie's a real engineer, you know, and, and you know, you, you, you just have that engineering mentality. And then when you start talking about what it looks like out the window and all those things, I mean, you just lit up. And, and it's just amazing to, to see that, that, that switch, you know, from the engineer to, to the, 
to the person looking with wonder at the world. So it's amazing. And, and, and I, I just really appreciate you, you sharing that. You could almost see that little boy. Funny, isn't it? And you said, you know, you were eight years old when those first missions were, were going. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, been your, it's been your whole life has, 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 has followed the space race, has followed this, this path. Yep. You know, that's why I spend a lot of time, Gary, with kids. I have a nonprofit called the Epic Education Foundation. Uh, we work with kids in Finland, Australia, the United States, working with kids and educators in Africa. We're going to be doing stuff with kids in, in, in Mexico and, and also in, in Africa and, and Brazil. Um, this is an experience for kids around the world, and it's going to take the entire world for us to work together to do something phenomenal in space. And that was the beauty of the International Space Station, over 15 different countries working together. Some of them used to be our enemies and uh, just coming together to do something positive, which is what we should be doing. Um, and, and that's what space means to me. And that's what we should be using it for. Amazing. So tell me more about Epic Challenge, Epic Education Foundation. What are they? Where do they come from? And, um, and what is it that you're trying to achieve with them? Well, you know, Gary, it happened because of the Columbia accident. I saw good NASA engineers not able to solve these critical problems. The things that we used to solve when I was a researcher in my, with my little branch at NASA Langley. And I said, you know what? We have to retrain not only NASA engineers, but people around the world on how to solve these very complex, highly interdisciplinary interconnected problems. And what I realized was, as I started diving into this to fix it at NASA, I realized was that I got the idea of an epic challenge. The thing that drove me to solve uh, into engineering and to, to, to study these very difficult subjects was trying to solve these almost unsolvable problems. And so I think every kid of all ages, even me to this day, when you're given challenges that almost seem impossible, it draws you into it. It makes you feel like you're part of something bigger than yourself. That was what the Apollo uh, moment, what that, as I call it, was like. It drew people from around the world um, to solve these challenges. And so what we do is we, we're developing these challenges, and most of them are related to space because it happens to be near and dear to my heart. And they're problems that NASA can't solve. So this heat shield problem, I'm going to make that a problem for kids around the world to solve. Uh, constructing a moon base, constructing uh, uh, habitats on the surface of the moon and Mars, we're going to make these real challenges real for kids of all ages. And what we're doing is we're giving them the tools and the learning material to teach them how to teach themselves, how to learn from peers, near peers, and subject matter experts, giving them the tools to show them how they can solve these problems, doing it at multiple levels from, uh, from the earliest, you know, from I want to go from preschool to graduate school. And um, I have grandkids in elementary school right now, and I believe in learning engineering in elementary school, but I believe that, that those young minds are the ones that are the most creative, and now you couple them with graduate students that have a lot of knowledge, 
and now can take a look at these wild ideas and maybe say, wow, some of these ideas might work. And they will be the mentors for the next generation. So that's my plan. I'm working with NASA. I'm working with friends from Boeing, people that are also retired from around the world. We're developing these online programs. Go to um, epigeducationfoundation.org. Sign up. We're going to be teaching classes for educators right here at at Space City here at Cocoa Beach at the Kennedy Space Center and around around the world. It's amazing. And and what does somebody need in terms of accessibility to participate in these programs? Do you need a laptop? Do you need a phone? What what, what do you need? That's really all you need. And so what we're trying to do is is to make these tools and this learning material accessible to anyone that has an internet connection. So with people like Elon Musk and Starlink, if we can get computers in the hands of kids in rural areas around the world, we can connect them with kids from around the world to join forces, create teams to help solve these problems and to learn and to interact with subject matter experts around the world. That's really incredible. And you're building a real legacy there. Well, we are, but my problem is I'm not a businessman. And so we, I really need to work on the funding to get the funding to actually make the magic happen because it won't take, it won't take much in order to make, to be able to make a system like this sustainable. And so we have a business plan. If folks are out there that want to be a part of it, you can contact me at Charlie at epiceducationfoundation.org and I, we would love to partner with you. That's, that's amazing. One last question. NASA has a tradition of playing music to astronauts to wake them up when they're up in space. And on your shuttle mission, they played Louis Armstrong, What a Wonderful World. What does that song mean to you and why was that the one that they picked? Well, you know, I was always a Louis Armstrong fan and... You know, he he just strikes me as a type of a person that has such joy and almost in a childlike way. And it just it strikes a chord with me because we do have a wonderful world and we have to keep it that way. And we're very blessed. And it's it's our children and our children's children that are going to make this world a better place. That's amazing. The unlock moment is that flash of remarkable clarity when you suddenly know the right path ahead. For world-leading engineer and NASA astronaut Dr. Charlie Kamada, it was seeing how failures crept into the culture at NASA that compelled him to become a leading voice for building a brighter future in science and engineering. Go find the Epic Education Foundation online and see if you can support in sharing the message or funding what they're doing in the future. We'll share the notes in in our show notes. Charlie, thank you so much for being my guest on this 100th episode of the podcast, for sharing your story and your message, and for joining me today here on The Unlock Moment. Gary, thank you so much for allowing me to be part of your special moment and for getting the message out. Thank you. Fantastic. Thank you so much. This has been The Unlock Moment, a podcast with me, Dr. Gary Crotez. Thank you for listening in. You can find out more about how to figure out what you want and how to get it in my book, The Idea Mindset. Find me on Instagram at Dr. Gary Crotez and subscribe to this podcast to get notified about future episodes. 
Most listeners to this podcast on Apple and Spotify haven't yet hit the follow button. If there's one thing you can do right now to help me out, then please click the follow button. The more followers I have, the better guests I can attract for you to learn from. Thanks again for listening and join me again soon here on the Unlock Moment.